I am excitable this morning. I'm excited. But I also feel a real weight of burden of what I've got to communicate. It, it's simple, yet it is utterly transformative, what Paul says in the passage that we're going to be reading today. And if we grasp this as a church, not just understand a few of the points that I'm going to try and lead us in understanding today, but really grasp and live in it. I have no idea what will happen to this city through us. Honestly, put your hand up if God has been faithful to you in your life. Do you know what, Freedom Church? With every ounce in which I am able to prophesy, I believe the morning, this morning that the Lord would say, that is just the tip of the iceberg and the start of how faithful I long to be. As I was in this passage, I grasped God's faithfulness in such a new and full way that I have literally been gobsmacked. And I just pray that the Lord would allow me to communicate some of that to you this morning. So shall we get into it? So we are in Galatians 4 this morning, 1 to 20, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And for most of this book, so far as we know, Paul has been going for his opponents. We've seen Paul in absolute fight mode. These Judaizers who have come to the Galatian church and said, hold on a minute, yes, you've accepted Christ, but now, by living a good Jewish life on top of that, by accepting the rules of the law, and by living in the customs of Judaism, that's when you really, that's when you're really accepted by God. You're really grafted into the people of God. So you need Christ and his glorious salvation by grace. Then you need a load of works on top. And Paul has been going, no way. Get off my gospel. But here, in this passage, there is a change of tone in what Paul brings. It's deep. And it swaps from this intellectual onslaught, looking at Jewish history, um, going over his past stories, teaching them about the absolute justification of Christ. And it turns to a deep appeal, uh, an appeal to the spirit and the hearts of his listeners of the like we don't see that often in the Bible. To keep up with the boxing analogy that we've been using to understand this book, it's like in this moment Paul is sat in his corner and whilst for the rest of the book he has been transfixed on his opponent, stern view, like that real look, that Paddington bear stare on them, do you know, like just fixed, I'm going to take you down. For the first time in the book, it's like his eyes gaze out of his corner and actually he looks to survey all of the people watching the match. He's looking at the people he's fighting for. And as he gazes out, compassion and love pours out to them. And what we see here is in this interlude 
in between boxing rounds, he stops and he appeals with a love that should make us stop and go, wow, do I love the people of God enough? That's the tone of what we're going to read this morning. Watch out for it particularly in verses 12 to 20, which I'm not actually going to directly go to this morning, but just listen to the tone of this. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have laboured in vain for you. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You knew it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And through my condition, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always a good thing to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and changed my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I'll tell you a story about a conversation I had with a guy called Peter. Peter was and is a manager in the probation service in Leeds, where I used to work before being called to Liverpool. 
on the whole, he's a fairly ordinary, nice guy. He was um, usually very relaxed, unless it was a uh, Monday morning when he was a bit tetchy. He was a die-hard Middlesbrough supporter, which meant that he never started his week well. As well as believe in Jesus, that would be my second greatest message. Don't believe in Middlesbrough. You can say that safely in Liverpool, can't you? On those mornings, he was fairly irritable. But, and I would often find this guy with his feet up on his desk, often reading a book which was not always about the work he was meant to be doing. But there was one time I went into his office to ask him a question when he just wasn't himself at all. He looked older, a bit pale, and had none of his characteristic joy. So being a relatively nosy pastor type, I asked him what was wrong, and to my surprise, he answered me, saying, I'm not all right. He was having trouble with his children, in particular uh, his son, who he described as having severe psychological issues that caused him to be incredibly aggressive to him and his wife, and to often go missing for weeks on end without letting him know where he was. And over the next half an hour or so, he proceeded to tell me how around 20 years ago, he and his wife had chosen to adopt three of the most abused children that I had ever heard about. And how sadly his children had never fully gotten over the damage that was done to them in their formative years. Mental health issues, drug problems, anxiety, forming abusive relationships had followed them their whole life. And their youngest son was still with them. And today, this was Pete's immediate worry. Their eldest they had not heard from in over three years. And their daughter's three children were under child protection proceedings. And Peter and his wife looked after them every weekend and holidays. And I'll tell you what, it's a conversation I'll never forget. And during this conversation, Peter became one of my heroes. Because despite all of these issues, he spoke tenderly with a father's warmth about each of his children. With a love of care for them, which had not wavered, even though it had cost him and his wife so much energy, emotion, time spent in police cells, rehab, being physically attacked, late night tears and arguments. And as the conversation drew to a close, I asked him whether he would do it over again, given how much it had cost him, and that his children had still been broken. Yes, he said without hesitation. Not just because my children needed rescuing, but because of my grandchildren. Matt, you should see my grandchildren, he says. Even though it has not been easy for them, our being there means they are secure, well-adjusted, loved and doing well at school. He says to me, I think it was for them and their, their futures that we really adopted our children. 
What a gem, eh? Peter, what a gem. Not a Christian guy. One who I have so much to learn from. You know, our country is overwhelmed by orphans and generational abuse. And there is only one thing on our nation that can instantly change it. And that is adoption. Whereby a child who would be raised without a loving mother and father or in a household where they would only learn abuse is in a moment picked up out of that situation and given parents who take them into a new culture of love and support and give them a totally new identity. It literally transforms everything for that child. And unlike any form of guardianship, which is temporary, the choice to adopt is a completely unique act in the UK. It is a legally irreversible decision to become the parent of a child. A permanent transfer of all rights and responsibilities for that child. It is a conscious decision by an adult to spend all that you are on that child, to give your heart completely to them. A complete grafting in of another into your family that gives the person absolute security that they will never, ever be cast aside. It is quite simply one of the most personally costly, yet fundamentally transformative decisions any adult can make in our society. And you know, at the very heart of Paul's appeal this morning, he he reminds his spectators and us that the cross was the point at which God made the incredibly costly decision at just the right time in history to adopt us, like Peter did to those three abused children. Galatians 4, 4 4-5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. If we grasp this, it is simply one of the most remarkable statements in the Bible. That more than just a legal exchange where God covered all of our sin and paid the price for us to be totally forgiven, which is incredible in and of itself. The cross was also the conscious decision by the most powerful being in the universe, even more powerful than Mr. Obama, to take on all of the parental responsibilities, care and heart towards us in an absolutely irreversible way, where no matter what we do, God will always love us as a father to a son, to care for our every need. We are quite literally in his family, just like Abraham was 
for a simple act of faith. At the cross, he picks us up out of being in the godless orphanage of the world. An abusive family where we learn generational mistakes and bad morality and we do not know his deep parental love and brings us into his family, giving us a fundamentally new identity. Church, you, I, and the Galatians have been irreversibly adopted by God. Do you understand that? Do you get it? Does that land with you? Let it go deeper than your mind and into your very spirit, being, soul and identity. There is no height, no depth you can go to to escape the love of God for you. When you come here to worship in the morning, you know you are secured and anchored. Not because of anything you've done, but because the living God adopted you. just because he loves you, just because you needed rescuing, just because, like Peter, he looked and went, no, that is not acceptable. Not for my children. Not for their future. But in this passage, he does not simply stop there. Paul explains two very important implications of the fact that God has adopted us. Firstly, he tells us that because we are sons, we are heirs. He discusses this between 1 and 7 in chapter 4, verses 1 and 7, with a kind of before and after picture that's a little bit like, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, have you seen one of those weight loss things? Where before she was a hundred stone, and then afterwards, she was three stone, and that's much healthier. Do you know what I mean? But it's a little, it's a little bit like that. A little bit. Not a lot. Not a lot. So the before shot of this we find in Galatians 4, 1 to 3. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same we also, when we were children, were enslaved the elementary principles of the world. This is the before shot. And he likens before we were adopted to a common practice of his day, where in a prestigious Roman household, if you were the heir to everything, but were younger than 25, you wouldn't have any real access to your father or your inheritance. You'd just live in that household. You'd be under the tutelage of somebody else, and you would just be like anybody else, indistinguishable from anybody else. So to look at you, nobody would know. You would just be like a slave in that household. Nobody would know you were really the heir, even though you were the heir to that promise. You would be a faded shadow, really, of what you were to become. And Paul here is simply saying that all of us, regardless of our background, were like this pre-25-year-old Roman heir before we were adopted by God. So if you were here three weeks ago, you'll remember that Paul has already described the complex law of the Jewish people as a, a temporary guardian for them, stewarding them until Jesus came. So they, they understood their need 
for God, but it didn't give them any real direct access to the Father, just like that 25-year-old. And they didn't really individually have access to the resources of his kingdom. And the rest of us from non-Jewish backgrounds, we didn't even have the law. So we had no access to the Father, and we had no access to his kingdom. And what Paul does here is he says, listen, you're all the same. You all just looked like slaves in that time before adoption. You all just looked like that 25, even if you were the Jewish people and you were my starting place for that promise. We were all like those people who didn't intimately know God or know the riches of his household. We just looked like old Charlie here, your average Joe workers, indistinguishable from everybody else. But in the after shot, in the weight loss Charlie shot, something changes. I look pleased with myself, I quite like that. After we've been adopted as sons, he, he says this, after he says that we have been adopted. Galatians 4, 6, 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, in a Roman household, if you were the heir, after 25, everything changed. You were brought right into the counsel of your father in that place, right into his closest confidence, and you were seen to have come of age and to have access to all the resources of that household. You could spend what was your father's on behalf of you, him. You were distinguished as the heir. Totally different to what had been before. And here is pulling out that the adoption at the cross is like this moment of coming of age for anyone who accepts it. Where he makes us true heirs with access to himself and access to heaven's resources. That is remarkable. How does he give us this access? Verse 6. By pouring the spirit of his son into our very hearts. Listen, if that first promise in today's talk of adoption, to take all of the legal responsibilities for your parenting, was not enough to make you fall to your knees and praise God, this one should be. That God has put his very person into our innermost being, our hearts of everything that we are which means we are no longer like a slave waiting to know our father's instruction but that we can intimately cry now to our Abba Dad Father and ask of him directly and have access through the spirit to the riches of his kingdom to literally live as an heir this is this distinction between what was formerly there for the Jewish people and the Galatians as they waited for Christ and the people who had been adopted at the cross. They are, and we are, heirs 
by the Holy Spirit to the kingdom of God. We sometimes throw around the Holy Spirit, don't we? Like, like he's a pet. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's just something that becomes part of our vocabulary. Oh, Holy Spirit here, Holy Spirit there, Holy Spirit did this. But the weight of the promise of the Holy Spirit is that the creator of the universe who spoke it into being put that very spirit that spoke it into being and raised Christ Jesus from the dead into our very persons that we might know him and know his power, know his authority and know the fruit of everything that it is. So when we ask for healings this morning, we're asking as heirs, not because it's some fanciful idea, but because the living God has poured his Holy Spirit into our hearts and called us heirs. That we are the utterly transformed version of old Charlie here. And finally, the second thing that he says to us is this. Because we are adopted as sons, we know the Father's voice. Building on everything he has said before, that the cross, at the cross we are adopted, making way for us to receive the Holy Spirit. Galatians 4, 8-10 says this. Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Why? I'm afraid I may have laboured in vain. Here in verse 8, Paul teaches us where slavery in the world comes from, in the lives of the Galatian believers. And he says simply that slavery is the result of following all the various voices in the world around them that were not God. Not just the Judaizers who had come to entice them to live as slaves to the law, not heirs again, but any of the voices in the world around them that were not God's true voice. And in Greek and Roman world, it was a bit like this knotted up spaghetti junction. There was a pantheon, loads of idols and gods promising all kinds of things, peace, prosperity, victory, power, wealth, fertility. And like in verse 10, there were a number of religious festivals in the Jewish calendars and the Roman calendars that if you just did this, you'd be pleasing to God and have his favour and worth and wealth. And all of these are saying, if you follow me, if you behave like this, you will have prosperity, happiness, success, salvation from enemies. They're all like voices crying out, follow me, follow me. Hey, come over here, follow me, follow this path. Come on, come do this, do this, do that. And before they had known the adoptions of son, all of the Gentile converts had lived by following the paths of these voices in their culture. And Paul here cuttingly calls these in verse 9, weak and elementary principles of the world. Things that are by nature not God. 
For Paul then to build your life on the foundations of any of these things, whether that be Jewish law, money's promise, or the key superstitions and beliefs of your culture, any of them was to listen to a voice and follow a path other than God's that was elementary. Quite scathing, isn't it? Weak, rubbish, simpletons way of following, walking in the world. Poor, impoverished, and was not of eternal substance. And his deep fear, the reason for the cry in his heart this morning, was that people had started to follow these voices again. First and foremost, despite having a good start, they were like the weeds in the parable of the sower that we read about in Matthew 13, 7, that had initially taken root in the ground and started to grow and flourish with the life of the word of God, with his voice, but where thorny briars had come up and entangled and enticed and the deceitfulness of different things, of riches, had choked the word in their life. They had started to seep in and smother the word and voice of God in their life. And so Paul expresses with anguish that he's afraid he has worked in vain. That his challenge to the apostles for them, everything we've read about so far, that his personal suffering, that the love relationship they had formerly shared, that we've read about in 12 to 16, that the Galatians would have formerly taken out their very eyes to look after him, had all been in vain. This is his worry. Do you know, in our world, although they don't look quite the same, there are literally thousands of voices. Cares, thorny entanglements in society saying, live like this, do this, buy this, believe this. Trying to win your hearts so that you follow them and you spend your few resources, money, time, emotion, spirit on them. Some of them are by design. Come spend, come spend £200 on this Gucci handbag or those lovely Jimmy Chews, like I know what I'm talking about. Or come follow Everton Football Club. Yeah? And you'll be happy, eh, Chris? You happy? You happy with Everton? Today you're happy with Everton. Come spend your life on us. Some are simply in our society and live there unquestioned. Come climb this ladder, get more power, live in a nicer area, bigger house, you'll be more successful, worth more as a human being. How in this entanglement do we know what is true or not? What is good? Which path we should walk? How do we not simply become enslaved again to the world? How do we pick the messages that are right? Big questions. Here, what Paul tells us is that there is a remarkable thing about being adopted and becoming an heir of the Holy Spirit. Is that in all the messages of the world, you now come to know the Father's voice, his genuine, intimate, guiding voice above all the other voices of your day no matter what the day and culture is around you and he knows exactly how to leave you lead you so verse 9 now you have come to know God 
or rather be known by God. You know God and he knows you. If the Bible is clear about anything, it's this. God wants us to know with utter confidence that we can hear and know his voice through his word and the Holy Spirit. And that we are to listen to this voice first and foremost in our daily lives. Coming back to him, our adopted, loving, securing father daily. And listening to his song over us. And filling our meetings collectively with the sound of prophetic words and guidance, words of knowledge, tongues and shouts of praise that are stirred from him to lead us as a church. So John 10, 27 says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Some people get a bit arduous over that. I see it as a, just literally, listen, look, have confidence. My sheep know my voice. You know my voice. You know the Father's voice. You know how to get through the tangled mess of messages in the world and out the other side, shining bright with the gospel and the truth of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is inside of you, because you've been adopted as sons, because you've been brought into that intimate place, because you're an heir over the age of 25, because I have drawn you close to me and made myself dwell inside of you. My Holy Spirit, the very person and creation of the entire universe is in your being remarkable, transformative, unbelievable, yet true. And Paul is so confident that the Galatians should be able to hear the voice of God and they know the voice of God that he is totally perplexed. The last word in this passage is, I am perplexed. I'm so confused. Why would you go back to that rubbish dump when you have heaven? Why would you believe those voices when you have the anchoring security of the Father readily available and crying over you? So here is what this passage is about. He fixes his eyes on the Galatian spectators and us as he sits in his corner. And he cries, please remember, by my gospel you were adopted. God chose to be your father for eternity. You became heirs by the spirit to the riches of his kingdom. And you know the joy and freedom of the father's voice. Not by following any other voice. In this world do you get to this position and relationship with God. All others are slavery. Please don't let anyone take you from this goodness. Or any of the world's brambles smother you. Just two quick applications to close. Firstly, this whole passage cries out one thing, that God wants you to have absolute security in his love for you. The same kind of security I saw in Peter for his adopted children, where it was so clear in my conversation that his love and compassion for them and the responsibility he took on as a father to broken, damaged children would never fade. At the cross, God has chosen to be your father, and he is an active father who gives you his spirit to live out this responsibility in you. And if Peter's love was unwavering, 
as an overly relaxed Middlesbrough supporter, how much more will the God of heaven and earth who sent his own son to die for you? Love be unwavering. There is no height, there is no depth or distance you can travel away from God that would change this, as I've said. Secondly, I've actually got three applications. Listen, what drives our evangelisms? Is it should? Is it must? It's this. Listen, God wants to adopt this world. God wants this world to know that security. God wants this city that we all live in and we all see its brokenness to know his heart of love. And he invites us into that task. And he helps us in that task. And he leads us in that task. It's not about shoulds. It's not about programs. It is literally about taking to an orphan child. Hey, here's the love of God. He wants to adopt you. He wants to take away the sin of the world and invite people into his family so that they know him personally. They know all of the riches of his kingdom and they know daily his voice. I find that a lot more compelling than a should and a must. That's the mission we've been asked to get involved in for Liverpool. I'm keen on that mission. I want people to know the riches of God. Finally, listen, I think this passage asks us a vital question. Which voice are you listening to in the world? Are you daily confidently listening to the voice of God by the, daily, by the Spirit, daily anchored and secured by it and led by him? You know, most problems in our Christian walk stem back to this. As a, I've been pastoring now for what, about... I don't know, how old am I? Ten years, maybe? I don't know. Something around that. Like, and actually, if you, if you walk back, you, you get to this point. Listen, how are you doing with your reading of the word? How are, you, how are you doing with your prayer life? How are you doing with those things that God has intimately given us to live a life with him and know the Spirit's voice uh, loud in our hearts? And I would say, you know, like there, there are obviously a broad thing, but actually... Lots of it comes back to how we are stewarding those things and how well we're believing those things, those great truths of the Bible in our hearts. Are we living in them? No, I feel distant from God. I, I haven't been listening to him. Oh, okay. Well, what have you been listening to? What have you been hearing about yourself? I don't know. I don't know. Are you responding in faith when he speaks? When he says go, when he says stay, when he says pray out, when he says prophesy to that person, to this person, to the church, he wants us to be full of his voice. We're his megaphone. Or are you just going with the flow of the world around you, passive in your relationship with the spirit and word? Are the messages of the world speaking, pursue success first, money first, nice things first? believe this world is just material and measurable. Hey, the voices you're following. 